welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. I'd go down to this high rise in the financial districts every afternoon and I'd work through till midnight. And so I would take a dinner break right around sunset and I would walk along the Hudson River. I would see these sailboats that just kind of carved their way up and down, silhouetted against the, the sky. And during my, my dinner break, that's when Emily and I would get on the phone and we would talk as we tried to figure out how to dig ourselves out of this hole that we found ourselves in. And I would describe this to her and she, she was happy that I would see these boats and that they would, they kind of gave me a sense of peace. And, and as I described it often enough, I, I realized that there was a sailing school right downstairs from where I worked. And that's where these boats were coming from. She said, you should go check it out. You know, maybe you'd want to learn how to sail. Eric Orton ended up taking his wife's advice and it changed their family's livelihood and life. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. On this episode of our series, Second Act Significance, we take to the high seas with Eric and his wife, Emily. The high seas is where they went in 2014 after Eric's dream job as a playwright and theatrical producer came to a crashing halt when his off-Broadway show was closed after only a few performances. The failure left him fearful and rudderless until his curiosity about sailing became his family's passion for it, and they steered their boat's rudder on a 5,000-mile journey from New York to the Caribbean. What Eric and Emily learned on the journey, with their five kids sharing the adventure with them, was how to turn worry into wonder and the importance of building confidence, credibility, and calm. Those are truths they now teach others through their speaking, writing, and coaching. Eric and Emily Orton have found second act significance, and you can too. Well, Eric and Emily, thank you so much for being here. I mean, it's so exciting what you're doing with the Seven at Seas book and the awesome factory and just your your journey uh, on the sailboat for a year. I mean, that's just magical that people only dream about, but you do advocate for turning dreams into reality. And before we get into kind of, you know, what's the challenges that set up that uh, year on the sailboat, talk a bit about maybe, as they say in the movies, the origin story of Eric and Emily and, you know, maybe not every beat growing up, but just what's some of the backstory of, of who the Ortons are, you know, before we get to uh, the, rock, the, the rocks, so to speak, with uh, some of the challenges. Okay, I love this question. So uh, we both grew up with dads in the military, so we moved around a bit, and our paths intersected first just outside of D.C. Um, when we were still in elementary school grades, but we did not meet there. We we met later in, in college. We were in the same school, and that's where we actually met each other, and um, right away, I we, we didn't like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. I can tell they're laughing before they say what happened. I'm like, I want, I don't want to drift here. I want to navigate. And, um, <laughs> navigate carefully, right? Um, we didn't hit it off first thing, but before long, it became apparent to me that, that Eric was just a genuine 
good guy. And I, um, that really resonated with me and I was very interested in him and he's so forthright. He told me right away, as soon as he heard, um, you know, nothing will ever happen between us, but we'll stay friends. And I can say we've been married for 26 years now and we are still friends. So we were kind of both right. <laughs> Yeah. But it, it sounds like there is something between you now, right? You, you're more than just friends. Would that be <laughs> For sure, assumption? yeah. It's, with five kids, I would say we've, we've moved beyond the friend stage. For sure. So far, so good. But I think okay. we were recently each sharing, like, what was a, um, a moment from our childhood where we felt proud? And um, as we were sharing those stories, I feel like that really ties into kind of the core being of, of who we really are. And for mine, it was just that um, my mom and my grandma had taken me to some boring conference and I had to wear a dress and I was nine and I didn't care about any of that stuff. But at this restaurant we went to afterwards, I was presented with my first slice of cheesecake. Ne I'd never heard of it. Can you imagine hearing of it for the first time? What a weird concept, cake made out of cheese. So I was trepidatious, but after I, I had it, I was like, wow, that was very small that slice of cheesecake and, and I wanted more. And my mom said, well, if you can pay for it, you can get a second slice. And I was, I, as a nine-year-old, I'm not carrying my wallet with me. And so I, she was basically just saying no. And I just sat there thinking about cheesecake and I excused myself ostensibly to go to the restroom. And when, but what I had remembered is that there was a wishing well out front of the restaurant. So I walked out of the restaurant, I stepped into the wishing well and I filled my skirt with coins. And I brought back a pile of wet money. And my mom was aghast that I had, you know, done this in front of everyone. And she's, you know, she said, those are other people's wishes. And my grandma came to bat for me. And she said, I bet they wished for a little girl to have a piece of cheesecake. And <laughs> I got a second piece of cheesecake. But mostly what I think makes me proud of that moment is that I just, I had nothing. And I wanted something. And I just figured out what was in my environment to find a way to make it happen. You know, it was kind of, and, and so I guess as far as background on us, for me, that would be, you know, illustrative. <laughs> and I guess the, the, the experience for my part that Emily was talking about, because we were running a retreat this past week and the opening question that we asked everyone was what's a moment from your childhood that you're proud of. And I was kind of stumped until afterwards I was telling Emily, I was like, actually, um, I played a version of baseball as a kid called coach pitch. I don't know if it's still a thing, but it's kind of between T-ball and regular baseball. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. My, 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 my boys did coach pitch, so I'm familiar with it, yeah. Okay, so coach pitch is where the coach actually throws the ball and some kid stands next to him to field anything that gets hit. So I my position was actually right field where the ball never goes. They put right. me there because <laughs> I was no good. And the kid that was playing pitcher got injured or couldn't make it anyway. So where could they afford to bring somebody in from? They brought me in from right field and I stood next to the, to the coach who's pitching it. And then big Dan on the other team comes to the plate. He's this big, <laughs> like, like, you know, we're all like eight years old and he looks like a 13 or 15 year old. He's just huge. And uh, the coach pitches the ball and, you know, all the outfielders sort of backed up to kind of get ready for his line drive for the fence and he hits this ball and it's going straight over my head. And I'm like, you know, okay. I just, I just put my hand up and I jump 
and I feel it sort of bounce off the tip of my glove and I come down and I turn around, and I look behind me to see how far, you know, is it a home run or is it in, inside the park? And I don't see the ball. And of course I look in my glove and it's there. And I just, <laughs> I was stunned. Everyone else was stunned. You know, like the place erupts. It's one of those like eight-year-old boys dreams. And, <laughs> and I'm just so glad that I went for it. Not even yeah. thinking I had a chance, but I went for it. And, it, and you know, and they, it, it was fun because they little, little write up in the, the baseball team newsletter and I became the permanent guy standing next to the pitcher. But really just sometimes you don't know if you're ever going to even stand a chance, but if, if you go for it, you just might. And as a baseball fan, I have to interject just one, one little comment. <laughs> Guess who played most of his games in right field? That would be Mr. Babe Ruth. So when what? they say, yeah, when people say right field is where the balls never hit, and, not, and, and the and the quote unquote not good players go there, Babe Ruth played right field. Just tell wow. them. Wow, I'm making a note of that. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. That is so great. Those are wonderful stories, and I got to imagine Eric for weeks or more after people were saying, you know, Eric Gordon, that's the guy who got Big Dan out. No, Big Dan, are you kidding me? Right. I'm sure you were, you're a legend. Uh, Pretty cool. much, yeah. You know, <laughs> as much as you can be as an eight-year-old. Our family visited Germany before borders closed for the pandemic. And this he, is where I was living in Germany. He was living time. in Germany. And he took us to this baseball field on the military base to show all the kids where it happened. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. It, it also reminds me of the other movie, Field of Dreams. That was kind of your... <laughs> me and Kevin Dreams. Costner, but, yeah. Yeah, um, me, Kevin Costner, and Babe Ruth, basically. <laughs> but hey, there's a yeah. play in that. There could be a play in totally that. <laughs> baseball through the ages. Yes, there you go. So I, I want to move ahead a bit, uh, but what I love about that story is they're both maybe I don't know origin stories, but maybe sort of a, a vignette of what was to come about two people that just went for it, that went for their dreams and. So I want to fast forward here, and unfortunately with the pandemic, it's been harder to go see shows, but uh, I, I grew up going to plays, and um, we live in Annapolis, Maryland, so we actually have seen Wicked on Broadway a number of years ago, and like everybody, it's unbelievable, and so that was just, the fact that you were involved in there and helping to produce it is just unbelievable. That's sort of a lead up to your challenge, but talk about, you obviously love music and producing and the theater, so talk about some of that background and, uh, you know, Wicked, and then you went on to do a, you know, uh, get an Emmy Award, uh, you know, for Berlin. So talk a bit about that, that period in your life, because, you know, you love music and the theater. So, I mean, that feels a bit like making your dreams come true. I mean, it sounds pretty exciting. It, it was pretty exciting. Um, yeah, I studied music growing up and, uh, Got into musical theater by accident. My friends signed me up for an audition in high school and I went. And anyway, I started doing theater and studied music and was writing in musicals and just started producing them when I was in college, uh, you know, mostly my own stuff. And then right out of college, I got a job as a junior manager on, on a Broadway show and we moved to New York, basically straight out of college. Uh, we got married while we were in school and we had already had... Uh, our oldest daughter was born while we were students. And so, but we moved there with two kids. Our daughter, our second daughter was born right before we moved there. And, you know, fast forward, I don't know, eight, eight, 10 years, I was managing the national tours of Wicked. And it was, it was a pretty dream job. 
you know, I loved the show. Um, Stephen Schwartz, who wrote it, it was a kind of a hero of mine. And so getting to work with him and yet before I'd accepted this job on Wicked, I had agreed to to produce this little show called The Ark, um, which is about Noah and the Ark. And it's kind of like a modern take on it. And I felt a deep loyalty to this little project of mine. Um, and so I left this really uh, kind of secure and high profile job on Wicked because, you know, a, a secure job in the theater is, it's a contradiction in terms, but I had that yet uh -huh. walked away with Emily's support. It was a pretty exciting time because I'd raised the money. I hired the director and the designers and I booked the deal with the theater. And uh, it was extra exciting because Emily was due to give birth to our fourth child. Now our first son, the, the day that this show is scheduled to open and uh, the show came and it opened up and it was a great time. The audiences loved it. And uh, we had a big party afterwards and then Emily, right on schedule, went into labor and gave birth to our beautiful boy. And I, I said to my producing partner, hey, I'm going to take a day, 24 hours. I'm just going to go be with my girls and my our new son. So I went off radar. And while I was in the hospital, the reviews came out and they weren't amazing. They weren't terrible. But uh, my producing partner, who is a, kind of a generation older than me, uh, was doing her best without consulting me though she made the decision to post the closing notice for the show which for her meant one thing because she was an established producer and had all kinds of other revenue streams and for us as a young as a young dad and as a young family i don't i don't think she realized that it was everything you know basically when i came out of the hospital and found out that the show was closing i was broke i was unemployed and quite frankly i was i was just I felt humiliated at this professional failure. And I ended up as the poster boy for failure because there was a picture of me on this roundup article that they had on in Crane's Business New York. I don't know how many people read that magazine, mm -hmm. but it's a big kind of a broadsheet that they print in New York City. And my, my face was front and center of why the off-Broadway business model was broken. And so that that failure put me in a pretty dark place. Uh, I was confused. Um, I was scared. And yet I still had Emily and our kids and I felt the responsibility of providing for them. And so I just went and I got a job, any job, which ended up being temping at a bank in the, in the financial district doing graphics at night. That's, that's our low point. That was where we got into the crucible that I think was a real pivot point for us. So, Emily, as this is going on, you probably have a mix of emotions. You have a baby boy that's just sheer delight and gratitude. And you've got a husband that was at the pinnacle of success and now is being branded as a failure by Crane's Business Journal, which I'm familiar with. It's a big deal. So, you know, what was going through your mind as all this was happening? And, you know, you're trying to focus on a new little life there. And that must have been a sea of different emotions, I'm guessing. Well, I, I always say I would, I will always bet on Eric Orton. Um, <laughs> you know, I married him for a reason. I, I really believe in him, but he needed this space to kind of feel the grief of the, of being disoriented. And I actually think it was a huge blessing that around that same time, we were able to have this, this little baby and we have these three sweet little girls and to just 
Eric would just kind of hold him and look in his eyes and be like, oh, you know, it's, it's just very centering. And as much as it inspires you to feel like, oh, I need to um, take care of my family, your family being there also is a source of comfort and strength. And and um, I've heard Eric say to two young men considering <laughs> marriage to say, you know, nothing lights a fire under your butt, like having a wife and kids <laughs> <laughs> makes you pretty ambitious. Um, but no, I know I would, he, he was devastated and it was very challenging. And, and I'm just so grateful that we're able to just talk and communicate. And he actually had kind of this unexpected, you know, paternity leave where we spent a couple of weeks just saying, oh my gosh, you know, let me stop reeling and make a pivot. As we're about to pivot into the next uh, bit of your story, you said something to me, Eric, when we talked offline, when I explained the nature of our series, Second Act Significance, and you actually indicated and it's it's not surprising at all, given your theatrical background. You indicated that you called the period after your show closed and and you guys were looking for what that next act was going to be. You called it what? Intermission. Right. Right. What follows intermission, if it's the first act that has been intermissioned, is what? The second act. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll more than happy to talk some more about that. But yeah, I, we definitely feel like our life is divided into two parts. There was like before the sailboat and before everything that led up to the sailboat and everything after it. So for sure, there's, there's a two act structure going on here. So here you were in this, uh, from what I understand, you're in this hired office building do it, doing a temp job. And I think what during a dinner break, you were looking out the window and it seemed like that look out the window changed your life. So just talk about talk about what happened as you were there in that temp job. So yeah, I'd go down to this high rise in the financial district every afternoon and I'd work through till midnight. And so I would take a dinner break right around sunset and I would walk along the Hudson River and I would see these sailboats that just kind of carved their way up and down, silhouetted against the, the sky. And during my, my dinner break, that's when Emily and I would get on the phone and we would talk as we tried to figure out how to dig ourselves out of this hole that we found ourselves in. And I would describe this to her. And she said to me, she was happy that I would see these boats and that they would, they kind of gave me a sense of peace. And, and as I described it off enough, I, I realized that there was a sailing school right downstairs from where I worked. And that's where these boats were coming <laughs> from. And she said, you should go check it out. You know, maybe you'd want to learn how to sail. And I told her that it wasn't going to happen because here's what I knew about sailing is that you had to be rich to sail. You had to be well-connected or you needed to grow up around sailboats and have kind of a pedigree, none of which were true for me. Yet she persisted because we talked every night. And I just want to say we had this whole system where <laughs> he would call me on his cell phone tell me the number of the payphone. then I would call him back on the payphone so that we wouldn't use up our minutes during his, his dinner break. I don't even know if there are payphones anymore in Manhattan, but that was the, that was the that's very how we beginning. made it work. Yeah. Cause we had one cell phone between us and it only had a few hundred minutes and we were just so poor. Right. Uh, but then, yeah, eventually we got a phone and so I was able to do these river walks and uh, it was um, realizing that there was this school down there and that I could, I could learn about this that was really the beginning of sailing as a family, uh, you know, because we knew nothing. We started from zero, I would say. 
So it wasn't like, oh, I see the sailboat, let's go to the Caribbean. And, you know, the vision just happened. It was like a Mount Olympus kind of deal. And it's funny because we just did a podcast recently that talks about how visions don't always happen overnight. They can be little steps. So why sailing? I mean, it's like there's a lot of things you could do. I mean, why even go to a sailing school? Why even play around with sailboats? Well, I think uh, for me, it it symbolized a kind of peacefulness. And I guess I've always, I used to deliver newspapers as a kid. You know, I don't know if people know, remember newspapers, but uh, (laughs) I used to throw them onto people's doorsteps before the sun came up. And so I got to look at the stars a lot. And I just, it was sort of this cosmic philosophical time, not every day, but every now and then I would just sort of contemplate my, my place in the universe. And, and I always thought about people over the centuries that navigated by the stars and, you know, I had sort of this romanticized view of it. And so that plus seeing, seeing these boats on the river, I just thought, you know, I need to get to a bigger place where I see things in a bigger perspective and so that my problems will seem smaller. And I think that's where the, the idea of sailing went, you know, that's what drew me in emotionally. I think another important piece was a friend of ours was starting up a a life coaching business and we agreed to be her guinea pigs. And she sent us these questions that we call blue sky questions. And we actually share these questions now. And we, when we take people sailing or we do retreats and things like that, some of them are, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if money were no object? Uh, And, uh, you know, what would you do if you knew you would succeed? And there's a few others. But I took some time to answer all these questions. And the point of them is to really just to pause fear and to mute it, because so often those feelings work that we have after these failures, they can crush us and they can they can take out any hope or ability to dream. And so we have to just set those aside momentarily when we have no idea how we're going to pull things off, you know, we don't have the money, we don't know if we'll succeed and just say, set that aside. What would I like to do? What would call what calls to me? And so when I answered these questions, I wrote down a hundred things over a hundred. <laughs> One of them was to sail for a year as a family in, I think it was in the Mediterranean was where I spent a year on a boat in the Mediterranean. We won't get into that right now, but basically it w- that was sort of the first time I I spoke it into the universe by writing it down. And then, yeah, it grew gradually from there. Well, he didn't tell me that he wrote that uh, in his journal. And I didn't know he was thinking about it in those terms. I just thought, you know, he's been he's been so devastated. And this would be something that just he needs something that's just fun, some new skill to learn or or something like that. And so that's why I was really pushing for it. But um, he went in and he asked, you know, so what does it take? And the people were really nice. Yeah, no problem. We can set you up with the class. But because of the hours he worked, it, they didn't have classes at that time. So he was going to have to bring the class with him, basically. So he started asking all his friends and coworkers and who else, you know, whoever, if they wanted to. He only needed to find three people, right? And there's like 8 million people in New York City. So he's asking around for a couple of weeks and he's not finding anybody. And then he comes out with this great idea. He goes, why don't you and our two oldest kids take this class with me? And the kids are 9-11. They're very excited. They think this is the greatest thing they've ever heard. 
I don't really see how this works budget wise because then now the class is four times the expense and we still have three <laughs> kids that need a babysitter. So I was like, uh, try, I tried to play that card first and you're like, well, I don't really know how we'll afford it. And he's like, I will get a second job. And then, um, I finally had to admit to my own fears that like, I am really scared of deep water. It hasn't really come to a head up to now. <laughs> um, even though we live on Manhattan Island, like it's has just hasn't been an issue. And I was pretty scared about it. And, and he said, look, like he kind of twisted it around and, and, and send it back to me like this. He was, you know what, that's the, it, that's perfect. That's exactly why you should learn how to sail because then you never have to go in the water. <laughs> I feel like I've been had, but <laughs> no, I, the kids were excited. And, you know, at that point um, we had started homeschooling our kids, which is a whole different journey, but I, but I care very much about them having hands-on experiences and concrete experiences. And so I, you know, we went for it. He got the second job. We all went down and, um, we took this class and we learned how to tack and jive and do all that stuff on just a tiny little sailboat. Uh, the main thing we learned is that we all get seasick. So that was an obstacle throughout our journey. Um, and then after that class, Eric said, you know, well, we I thought we're good. And he's like, well, we don't really know if we can do it until we go with no instructor. So we go with no instructor, but we don't just say like, let's the four of us go with no instructor. We like bring the whole family. So now we're adding a six-year-old, a two-year-old and a baby who can't sit up on her own. And we decide we're going to try this for the first time in, in Tom's River, New Jersey. And as you might expect, we were a spectacle. And the other the other <laughs> boaters were pointing at us and laughing. And every time we tipped a little, they would uh, the kids would cry or scream. And I'm trying to like nurse a baby through two life jackets. And the best part of the day is when we were back on land throwing rocks in the water. You know, that was the part where we're like, oh my gosh, we're never going to do this again. <laughs> like that that was that was rough. But I. Eric continued sailing for a couple of seasons uh, with just gathering up friends. Whoever wants to chip in will do this. And, and after a couple of seasons, he was a little more confident, anticipating uh, what might need to be done and, and being able to give instructions and just be like a really present captain. And he said, you know what, let's try it again. And we joined a little sailing club in New Rochelle, New Rochelle and we started going out as a family. And it was a, this really beautiful season where um, every kid had a turn at the tiller. And it's very different when a kid gets to put their hand on the tiller, the experience that they have. We didn't get any cell service. So we just look in each other's eyes and we'd sing together. We'd talk. We'd just lay around in the sun or read aloud books. And we did this two, three times a month. And I thought we were like at the perfect amount of adventure. I never had to get in the water. It was close to home. You know, that all of that was working out great for me. And then one day, Eric put his arm around me in our little apartment. And he said, I think the seven of us on a sailboat would be enough universe for me. I was like, really? <laughs> you know, because he has so many interests. He said he wrote down over a hundred things. He's like, yeah, that's like all I want, just the seven of us on a sailboat. And I had all these questions going off in my head about like, well, that requires a much bigger boat with much higher skill level. And, you know, there's engines and electricity and water. And, um, what about our, you know, what if we would get injured or hurt or get in a storm or what about leaving our communities of our school communities or our friend communities or, you know, all of that stuff just 
it kind of made a traffic jam in my head, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't say any of that stuff. I just said, when would you want to go? And he had an answer he knew because he said, you know, Emily, we have this really short window of time with our kids and it's closing. And I would want to do something like this as a whole family before our oldest one leaves for college. And I think she was around 14 at the time. And, you know, maybe living on a sailboat wasn't the biggest dream of my heart. I was actually pretty scared about it. But what I did feel good about what I heard him saying was our children will have me around 24 seven that, you know, they'll have that influence and they'll get to be with their dad all the time. And I couldn't think of a greater gift. And then that just dovetails in with like, yes, hands-on experience, try new things together, create memories. And I, I really had this belief that um, memories are the best investment that we can make because they always increase in value. And so we just proceeded from there, you know, and for me to just real quickly to, to face that fear about deep water, we had, we were taking a class in the Caribbean to help us know how to sail these larger boats. And I, you know, I knew we needed this for just basic safety and survival. In my mind, this was not a vacation at all, even though it was in the beautiful British Virgin Islands. And the instructor kept, you know, every day would invite the students to go snorkeling at night or in the morning. And so when I am sitting there on the, in the cockpit and everyone has gone off and I'm, you know, they're, they've flip, flippered away to the reef and I'm just there thinking, do I really think I can live on a sailboat for a year with out getting in the water? And like, what example am I really setting for my kids? Am I, you know, I'm telling them one thing about how they can overcome their fears. And then I'm sitting here in the cockpit, like, who do I really want to be in this world? And so I just put on a mask and flippers and my heart was racing like crazy, but I jumped in and I just started kicking as fast as I could. And, and I saw this large shape just came across, you know, from, from my right periphery to my left periphery before I could even register what it was. Jaws was her deepest fear. Yeah. I know. I get <laughs> sharks. And so anyway, I, I saw what I, I finally, first I just saw like a shape and a color. And then I was like, wait, that is a sea turtle. That's fine. And then immediately the next thought right behind it was like, what eats sea turtles? And it turns out I actually could swim faster than I thought originally. And I made it all the way to the reef and it was incredible, like finding Nemo. And I, it was so much different than watching it on TV and being fully immersed in that experience. And in that world was such a surprise to me. And I was so fascinated that I forgot to be afraid. So the two takeaways for me were that this was going to be a lot more fun than I thought, you know, (laughs) that, that, yeah, we could maybe really do this thing and that I could live in, in the water like this. And the second one was that it changed the relationship that I felt like I had with fear because I thought that was a very sturdy fear. I'd been living that way for three decades and I just thought it was real. And, um, when I kicked the tires like that, it, it just disintegrated. And so I had to reevaluate all the other fears that I already had. And every time a new fear comes up, I have to say really what other favorites are hiding behind those fears. So for me, that was a real turning point. That, that's huge. I mean, if you can conquer one of your deepest fears, the fear of deep water, it's like, okay, well, I've, I conquered my deepest fear. I'm ready for the next one. You know, what could be worse than that? And you had to, to I'm sure, face fear economic. It's like, well, how do we can afford the boat? And 
a year? How are we going to get income? But I'm sure you solved all those problems, came up with the plan, and and off you went. I mean, people listening to this are like, that's incredible. I mean, they knew nothing about sailing, and they learned about sailing. They learned about how to sail a boat in the Caribbean and take a year off sailing in the Caribbean. That's most people dream about those things, but they never do it. You know, they sit sort of on their deathbed thinking, wouldn't it have been fun if? But, you know, I, I think of that quote that I'm sure you probably heard of by Thoreau. You know, they live uh, lives of quiet desperation. You know, that encompasses most of humanity. They have dreams and, and they never do it. But but you did. And so, you know, talk about, because that sort of it leads into what you do now. How did that year with your family change your life? Because that intermission, it fundamentally changed the direction of your life in ways you probably never could have imagined. For sure. Uh, I often get asked what the hardest part of the, the journey was. And I think the hardest part was actually when I was taking those walks along the Hudson and Emily said, you should go check this out. The moment I stepped across the threshold into the sailing school and said, hey, I'm interested in learning how to sail. How does this work? That was the hardest part. And yes, there would be storms and there would be, uh, you know, logistics and there would be all kinds of other problems down the road that we would have to solve. But I think uh, the hardest part of these things is is seeing ourselves differently because you're talking about living lives of quiet desperation. It's because I think we often get trapped in our own stories, our narrative of how we think our life is going to play out. And the ability to sort of crack that open and and allow other possibilities to come in and to awaken ourselves to our to our divine potential, to our to who we really are in the bigger scheme of things, that's the hardest part. You know, for all the day-to-day stuff about what happened on this trip, you know, read the book. We won't get into all that now. <laughs> right. But when we when we came back, first of all, we'd live to tell the tale. All of our, you know, what, the thing that got us out there was we, you know, we had this list of worries that Emily had mentioned initially, you know, they're logical, they're reasonable, money, health, safety, community, all that sort of stuff. And walking away from that, at least temporarily. When even our, our two youngest kids didn't know how to swim and our youngest daughter has Down syndrome and she had all this therapy we were leaving behind. I mean, they were legitimate um, responsibilities we were yeah. taking into consideration. I'm not trying to minimize Yeah, them. absolutely. And yet when we looked at all the things that could go right, you know, there's the what could go wrong category. And we looked at all the things that could go right. And we thought we could see beautiful places. We could gain new skills. We could make amazing new friends. And that list just went on and on and on. And the the finite, unlikely list of what could go wrong balanced against the the ever-expanding and likely list of what could go right made it, at a certain point, it made an easy decision because we knew that none of this stuff would actually go right unless we did it. Mm. And so we gave up our fear of what could go wrong and were able to step into what could go right. And then to come back from the trip, and you know, I was worried about financial ruin. But I had a job waiting for me before we got back because, you know, I thought my fear was, oh, when you leave and you have a gap in your resume, you don't ever get hired again. So I'm going to be lucky to get whatever work I have. My old job wanted me right back. Um, people were actually calling me saying, hey, are you looking for work now that you're back? And so all none of those fears came to pass. And it opened my mind to all kinds of stuff in a new way. Um, 
I actually tripled my income after I came home just because I thought about, I moved through the world in a different way. I was less afraid. And, and really that, that mindset shift has led to that period of, you know, coming home. And then we basically, you know, we worked for a few years to get some money back in the, in the coffers. And we were able to find inventive ways, not expensive ways, but very inventive ways and travel the world with our kids for the next five years. And basically until COVID kind of stopped all that. And so I attribute that change to the, the mindset shift that happened when we went on this trip and I'm, I'm forever grateful for it. And so to Gary's point, that's why the boat was intermission and it just t- took us into a whole new act where we've lived in a new way since, and I'm so, so grateful for that, that failure, that crucible moment to use your language, that crucible moment that helped us transform into something that we didn't think was possible for us. And you've talked a, a lot about worry in what you just said. And we have guests um, fill out a form so that we have the ability to ask smart questions when we interview you. And one of the questions that we ask every guest is, what is a critical action um, you believe people can take to find hope and healing after a setback? And your answer to that question hinges a bit on worry. You said, turn worry into what? Wonder. Wonder. (laughs) Right. Why is that so important in general for anybody who's gone through a crucible? Well, let me, so, so going back to what we were saying about this, what could go wrong question, that's the worry question. Right. And it's, and we all go there. It's, you know, it's being prepared. It's preparing for contingencies. It's, you know, it's the responsible thing that we do as adults and parents and business owners or whatever role we might be in is we prepare for what could go wrong. And yet that's only half the equation. And if we never ask the question, what can go right? I kind of feel like there's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty there to only ask one of those questions. Both of them are valid. And when we ask the what can go right question, we then start to take that same imagination, that same mindset that can spin off into a deeper and deeper dark hole of worry. And we say, well, what could go right? And that's the same process of imagining and sort of vision casting, whatever you want to call it, where you start to contemplate all the positive outcomes. And it's the same skill set that your mind does where you say, you know, you're sort of imagining a future and you can use it in a negative direction or you can imagine in a positive direction. And when we can take that, that mental ability to worry and we flip it towards the positive, then we're really able to create in our minds and in our spirits, the things that we want to bring into being. And, and I think that was really the shift that happened for us. And I, I don't know if I'm saying it the way that, that um, or if you have anything you want to add. Well, it's a more complete picture yeah. when you balance that. And I think as we, as we were nearing home on this trip, we asked our kids uh, when we left, they were six through 16. And as we approached home, they were um, the older two had turned 15 and 17. And they're wise and we always counsel with them and we like to see how things are going and get their feedback. And so we asked them, you know, what are you, how has this changed you? Or what are you taking away from this trip? And our our 17 year old said, you know, it hasn't changed me. It's made me more myself. And I think that's what we talk about in the crucible experience, like burns off everything. When you have like an intense experience, it burns off everything that isn't really you, that doesn't really matter. And it shows kind of your true colors more vibrantly. And then the um, 15 year old said to us, this 
trip has made me comfortable being uncomfortable. Just kind of piggybacking off what our children had said, I said, you know, Eric, I think what we're really taking away from this experience, like the real treasure here is three kinds of confidence. Mm. Um, It organically grows out of competence. When you learn a new skill, you're like, wow, I did a new thing. And then it expands what you think you're capable of doing. And we did this thing and we learned a whole bunch of new skills and that grew our confidence. And then the second is credibility where we, when we do what we say we'll do, even if we only tell ourselves we're going to do it, it grows our trust. And we have, we have learned that there's a ratio relationship there between the credibility that we have with ourselves and how big our dreams are. And so you know, we came to trust ourselves more. Other, our kids believed us, you know, that we would do what we said we would do. Other people believed us. And I, and I think that's why Eric was getting those calls. Like, Hey, do you want to come work for us? This is a guy who gets things done. And then, um, calm for me was the most transformative because I come from a line of professional warriors and always trying to put in all the possible contingencies. And what about this variable? And, And what would we do in that case? And this helped me see as we literally move from island to island to island to island, all the way up this chain from St. Martin to Manhattan, 2,500 miles, we did this process over and over again, where we'd never been there before. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be like. And as we got closer and closer, palm trees would emerge. We'd see where we were going to anchor the boat. We'd find the grocery store, see if we needed to change money, you know, all those like the details would fill in as we got closer. So that gave me this sense of calm. Like I don't have to know all the answers before I take off. I don't even have to know all the questions, but as I move in the direction I want to go, the details will fill in, um, you know, the, the, the path or the answers will emerge and it's going to be okay. (laughs) So, you know, we've done this so many times now that I believe going forward, we will, we will figure it out. So that, that is, you know, really everything under that umbrella of turning worry into wonder is like, let's just get curious about this for a minute. And I think grateful. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to just listen to listen to what Emily and Eric are saying. I mean, this concept of turning worry into wonder, not just looking at sort of the column that says what could go wrong but what could go right and as you start taking steps of faith however you want to express it in you know your inner self or the divine whatever paradigm you want to look at but as you trust yourself and you make those steps it increases your belief it increases your ability to take a bigger step and another step and so one of the things you said emily uh, i believe I love, and this is all part of the wonder muscle, I think, is I think he said something like this. You develop a a friendly disregard for others' opinions. When you live a life you love, everyone wins. I mean, getting other people's input's good, but you got to know when to switch it off and it's not serving you. So talk about how all of those experiences, all of that wonder muscle exercise led to, obviously wrote a book, um, Seven at Sea, but the awesome factory Talk about how all that dovetailed into your second act. So as we wrote this book, we came home and everyone's like, when are you going to write the book? When are you going to write the book? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That wasn't our intent. We weren't doing some kind of gimmick trick that we could then write a book about. But we do know we're both lifelong journalers. Obviously, Eric's written plays. And when I was teaching in in public schools, I was an English teacher. And we both feel deeply about the power of 
writing and the power of story. And so we thought, you know, we're not really going to have completed this trip until we've written about it and like processed it and, and sort of gleaned our takeaways. And so we hoped that we could, you know, solidify that, have something to pass on to our children. And if anyone else wanted to read it and, and it could encourage them to live more deliberately, live a little more boldly than we were, you know, all about that. And so what we didn't expect as we, as we wrote it was that we were going to reverse engineer this process, which we now call the navigator framework for um, facing disruption, whether you're causing it or it's coming to you. And, you know, it, it, we used all sailing metaphors. That was our experience. And that's what the book is about. And so we kind of pulled out those of choosing your own Island, right. Having your destination and there includes an exploratory time prior to the choosing chart, your course, cast off, navigate out of the Harbor, set your autopilot, trust your compass, and then drop anchor. And there's some important parts in, in dropping anchor as well. Um, to rest, reflect, and and celebrate on what just happened before you start the cycle all over again. But we we recognized it, and now we had this map. And so as new opportunities would arise, we would identify them. We'd know where we were. We'd know where the fear was going to come in, and we'd have our strategies of like, we just need, we need more information so we have a bigger vision so we're able to release, you know, <laughs> what we're clinging to or, you know, things like that. And we just used it as our own secret sauce to do all these things. You know, Gary was mentioning at the top of the show, traveling around the world, Eric climbed El Cap. We got scuba certified. Um, we did, we, we lived in New Zealand for a hundred days, just farm sitting and traveling around by RV. And, you know, we were just so curious. We want, we, we wanted to take this idea of like, I want to see for myself. I want to, I want to go there. I want to touch it. I want to taste it. I want to smell, you know, like have these experiences with our kids. Then when COVID hit, we realized this is like, uncertainty on a massive scale. People aren't used to facing disruption. We've become accustomed to this dance and we have developed a lot of strategies and we just didn't feel like we could just keep these to ourselves and, and only pass them to our children anymore. We thought we want to start sharing and helping. And just what you said at the beginning, like to go from, from drifting to navigating, just taking this, I think everyone's having this big shift of saying like, wait a minute, am I really where I want to be? And where am I actually going? And I was like, this is the perfect moment to just step in and talk about these strategies for being at the helm in your own life, being the navigator in your own life. And that doesn't mean you always control the circumstances, but it means you're always deliberate about the choices that you're making and, and which direction you're trying to head. You used the phrase drop anchor a little while ago, a few minutes back. We've reached the 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 time in the show where I normally say the captain's turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're going to have to land the plane soon, but come on. We're talking to people who sailed a boat 3,000 miles and a guy who produced plays. So we're going to either drop the anchor in a bit or we're going to drop the curtain in a bit. We're going to do one of those two things. But before we do, I would be remiss in my duties as a co-host if I did not give you, Emily and Eric, the opportunity to let folks know how they can find out more about the book and more about uh, the Awesome Factory online. How can they reach you guys, find out what you do, and maybe uh, engage with you? Sure. We've got the book is uh, Seven at Sea. You can buy it anywhere that good books are sold. Theawesomefactory.nyc is our website, and there's information about us, the book, and social media and all that there. So the awesome is, is the best place to connect with us. That's awesome. 
I would say. <laughs> Warwick, Warwick, you have the last question or two. So Eric and Emily, I mean, I just find this fascinating, your story and your journey and a couple of thoughts in my mind. One is that quote of Thoreau, you know, so many people lead lives of quiet desperation. I'm wondering if you had to re-engineer that quote as people that love English and theater, what would that be? But I don't know if that's the right approach. I mean, that's certainly one tack and another would be kind of what's the message of hope and encouragement you can give to people that are maybe living air, living life in the gray, maybe they're in that cubicle, maybe they've uh, had that financial failure or physical failure or however you want to answer that, but what's sort of a message of hope or, you know, a life that's not a life of quiet desperation, but what's your hope and dream for people that maybe they're not living fulfilling lives, they're kind of sad, depressed, feel like life is just not the way they thought it was going to be? I think that's a very beautiful and compassionate question, Work, and I'll try to do it justice. Um, I've been that guy in the gray cubicle, as you know, and I've been that guy who's felt just crushed and, you know, and, and not feeling like anything that I want in life is happening. And I, I, was, I would say this, as Emily and I are fond of saying, when you live a life you love, everybody wins. That's nice if you can get there. How do you get there? And, and I think it starts with what Emily was talking about earlier, which is how do we build these three kinds of confidence in ourselves? And it starts with little things. If I say, I'm going to go for a walk every day, and then I get up and I put my shoes on and I go for a walk every day, I'm going to feel better about myself. And when I start to feel better about myself, I'm going to start to make better decisions. I'm going to start to see the world differently. Uh, and it can be a, some, something as simple as I'm going to, I'm going to go for a walk every day, or I'm going to eat an apple instead of a candy bar, whatever it may be. But if you do it, your confidence grows and your light starts to brighten. And, and I think what I was saying earlier, which is the hardest part of this journey for me was seeing myself differently. If we can invite light in, in all these different ways and illuminate our, our view of ourselves and the world and God, whatever that means to you, if we can, if we can invite that light in and have that fresh perspective, that's what ultimately leads to living a life that we love. And when we do that, everybody wins. We win, our spouse wins, our colleagues win, our kids, everybody. And so it starts with seeing ourselves differently. And I would just add to that making space, like Eric said, for the light. He was talking to a coworker once when he was in the gray cubicle place. And this other guy, he was in a similar place in his own life. This was for him also sort of a holding pattern after a, a fail. And, you know, he was telling about all of the things he'd done in his past. And Eric said, what are you doing here? And that really kind of woke him up to his capacities. And, and he just realized I've been in sleeper mode here and I have stopped taking responsibility and I've stopped even listening to my own thoughts. And so the single change that he made is that he stopped listening to music while like, while he was just on, has a default mode to just put something in his ears to distract his brain. And he started giving himself some quiet so he could listen to his own thoughts. And lo and behold, he started having all kinds of, all kinds of ideas we would be remiss if we didn't actually say that for us, um, when you're in that place um, where it you just feel stuck, we've found gratitude to be transformational. 
And when we were first married, when we first got engaged, Eric mentioned we were pretty young, but the first thing we did is we got a piece of paper and we wrote a list of all the things that we would always have control of, no matter what our external circumstances were. And one of the things that we put on that list is that we could always be grateful. And we decided early on that if we tried gratitude and that didn't help, then we would know we were in real trouble. And we've been married for 26 years now. And so far, gratitude has always helped us, you know, get a little inch up and get a better perspective on what's going on and helped us see, yeah, we have more to play with here than we originally thought we did. I have been in the communications business long enough to know when the last word on a subject has been spoken. So the anchor is down, the curtain's down. Uh, you can get off the boat or you can leave the theater, <laughs> however that works for you, listener. Before we go, I have to tell you, Eric and Emily, I I love reading um, the things that you wrote in, in the form that we had you fill out. I love you know looking at the Awesome Factory website. I love talking to you beforehand and here because I've written a bunch of notes down. Listening to you guys speak about what you've been through is like following around and grabbing paper and stuffing it in your pockets because you have so many good perspectives and the way that you phrase them are, can be so compelling and so beautiful. And there's one thing that you said that I want to leave our listeners with, um, not just listeners to to Beyond the Crucible, but for this series on second act significance, because you said this, which I think um, it could be a... Uh, my background in entertainment comes from the, the movie business. So the log line for this series could be this. How can you live deliberately doing what you care about most with the people you care about most? That's something that you said. I'll say it again, listener. And as you look to move beyond your intermission to your second act, have this question in your mind. How can you live deliberately doing what you care about most with the people you care about most, because that is a recipe for second act significance. Until we're together the next time on Beyond the Crucible Listener, thank you for spending this time with us. And please remember that while your crucible experiences are difficult and painful, we know that, the Ortons certainly know that, Warwick certainly knows that, those crucible experiences are not the end of your story. In fact, if you learn the lessons of them, if you recognize they're not things that happen to you, but things that happen for you. You can begin a journey. It doesn't have to be on a sailboat, but it can be. You can begin a journey that leads to a better end to your story, a better place for your compass to point you, because where that takes you is to a life of significance.